Just, yeah. just to make it easier. All right. All right. Hello, Alaska. I'm Matt Buxton. And I'm Pat Race. And this is a podcast about Alaska. Doodly doo doo music, music. <laughs> oh, sorry. That's where I was going to put the music. <laughs> Uh, in today's episode, we're talking about the budget crisis. But don't call it a crisis, Matt. Uh, maybe like an opportunity or a challenge, possibility, uh, hope. I, I think I think crisis is the right word here. We could use woes if you like that more. Uh, yeah, uh, stick with crisis. That's okay. Good. So anyways, long story short, Alaska is not making as much money as it used to, and particularly not enough money to pick up the tab uh, for government. So today, we're taking our first wading steps into what will hopefully be um, a long-running deep dive into the budget but first news of the day all right yeah so what's going on in the news matt so it has been a busy week already we're recording this on tuesday february 9th um and the house uh so, so today's a uh, yesterday was the 21st day of the legislative session and the house has already gone into turbo mode so you, what does that mean? Yeah, you what might ask, like, what, like, does, what does that mean? Yes. Thinking of old Nintendo games. So, uh, basically, they passed a resolution yesterday that says they will not do anything until they've done a budget. And so it doesn't mean they're all the way done with session, but it means that they have given the operating budget over to the Senate. So no bear license plates. No, Sadly, uh, no, no marmot, bear license plates. No marmot license plate. Well, you know, I, if we just take off our glasses, I feel like the bear license plate could look like a marmot license plate. Oh, that's true. I like that. So. Okay. In my heart, it will always be the marmot license okay. plate now. <laughs> uh, Anything else coming across your radar? Um, what is... Oh, well, I mean, that was the same day... That was kind of a, a big day in the, in the legislature. The, it was the, the same morning that the... Um, the Democrats had their big joint press conference thing, and they mm -hmm. they announced that like, hey guys, we are we are ready to uh, join in a caucus of the whole, so that we can all work together and get this budget thing fixed. Mm -hmm. And so um, that seemed like a big gesture, uh, but it doesn't sound like it's going to necessarily go anywhere. But it's interesting to me because it kind of opens the door to bipartisanship and like a. a a more functional middle ground coalition. And I, I feel like I'm a very middle of the road guy and I mm -hmm. would love to see some of the uh, more extremes uh, kind of cast out on icebergs right now. Well, that was one of the interesting things that when I got here in 2011 and I covered the session for the first time in 2012 is that was the last year of the bipartisan coalition in the Senate, which was, you know, half and half kind of of Republicans and Democrats all together. And what was interesting there, and it gets criticism now from the Republicans in power, but um, they they basically kind of threw aside the most um, divisive issues. You know, abortion was basically off the table, but on the other hand, you know, same-sex marriage was taken off the table. And it's kind of these divisive issues, what, you know, for good or for bad, were not addressed. And kind of, you know, and it's sort of a realization that people really agree on, like, 80 to 90 percent of things most you know most of the time it's the sort of extremes that really divide us and so you know they were able to to kind of go in there um as far as you know my my observations of how doable this might be it actually looks like it might kind of be something that would be entertained in the house which is actually kind of surprising to me i it seemed at first like it was just a non-starter but uh i saw chanel kind of came out and said like maybe this is something we consider and mm -hmm. 
uh, I could I could possibly see that happening. And now I don't know if that's what he's saying in public. I, I don't know if it, it jives with what's happening in the negotiation room, but um, I imagine it will be attractive to Republicans because it means they won't have to fight the CBR battle, the Constitutional Budget Reserve mm-hmm. vote that happened last year. It was it was this long, grueling, drawn-out thing. And nobody looked good doing it. Either. No one looked good doing it. And so, I mean, if they don't do that, if they don't do it now, we're looking at another big extended battle at the end of the session when the Democrats pick out two or three things that they want to save. You know, like we mm-hmm. we demand that you fund ferries and education and our marmot license plate and if yeah. you don't do it we don't give you our votes and then the government shuts down and i i feel like this year we could we could become much you know it could go on much longer than it did last year even. yeah and so with some of the examples that were thrown out as um you know reasons to do this you know we have the bipartisan coalition which is maybe not the best thing to bring up when you're trying to ask the republicans who just banished the coalition um, to do, but you know they. they but the bipartisan back. coalition was in the Senate before, right? Yeah. So it wasn't in the House. Yeah, they're they're asking both bodies to do it. Yeah. But um, they also brought up you know statehood, and they brought up um, the pipe pipeline, or sorry, excuse me, the permanent fund days, which that those kind of times were when a committee or a caucus of the whole was um, put into place and was effective. Okay. And so, um, you know, I I think. The, 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 one of the big messages that I think struck with a lot of people is that, you know, we really are at a important time in Alaska that the decisions made this year, really this year and, and potentially in the next few years, will have a huge impact on the shape of Alaska over the next 15, 20, 50 years. Yeah. And so, you know, when we're kind of faced with this magnitude of magnitude of uh of problems you know maybe it is good to kind of set aside the political differences so we'll see and then the other part of the equation is that that uh they don't have to carry all the blame if it goes wrong right yeah so. yeah which is actually that that was <laughs> and the... then you can come back in in five years and be like oh those bipartisan coalitions just don't work yeah exactly yeah, yeah. so so we'll see so now what everybody has been waiting for <laughs> the budget <laughs> So if you've been following the show, you probably know the basics. We have a, about a $3.8 billion shortfall in a $5 billion budget. Um, on, on a bad day with oil prices, it might be a $4 billion, $4.2 billion shortfall, but $3.8 billion is about yeah, right. Yeah, so pick your number. Like, I mean, there's not much difference between $3.8 billion and $4.2 billion, right? Well, I mean, that's only half a billion dollars. So <laughs> how big is uh, how big is $3.8 billion? I, I don't Okay, actually, I was yeah. I, I was looking this up the the other day because um, after I ate way too many tacos watching the Super Bowl, I uh, I thought, oh my gosh, I wonder I wonder how much those teams are worth. And and actually, if you add up the the according to Forbes, if you add up the value of the Broncos and the Panthers, you get uh, just under three point eight billion dollars. So, you know, that's this. We have a Broncos and Panthers. We have a Super Bowl sized problem here. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Yeah, so it's um, to and to put that in more human terms, it's it's always so hard to understand how much money that is. So it's it's four hundred thousand dollars an hour. It's more than that. It's it's more than four hundred thousand dollars an hour, and it's more than one hundred and twenty dollars per second. So like if I did that that thing where you peel the money off the stack and you're like shooting the money off your hands and it, might, doing, it might catch fire if you just do this. 
if you're just those are hundred dollar bills and you're just casting them out that's what our state is doing right now yeah that's that's how much of our savings we are burning stop it you know i'm gonna catch this right now one hundred (laughs) dollars a second well and i'm over here doing the other the 20 the 20 yeah Yeah. okay (laughs) cool all right. Okay, so, so everyone knows everyone that we're done, right? We, we got the budget so situation all figured out. Well, that's the problem is we <laughs> need to stop spending a hundred dollars a second or a hundred twenty dollars a second. You know, we mm-hmm. need to stop spending that amount of money, uh, or we're going to run out of savings. And when we run out of savings, then we have to tap the big piggy bank, mm-hmm. uh, and then once that goes away, then we're in big trouble. So, how do we close this gap? There's two sides to this problem. There's there's our income, our revenue. Like mm-hmm. what? Are, what are we making? Which is not very much, and then right what? Are, what are we spending? Our expenditures. So, um, so how do we make these two things meet? And and basically, we can either reduce the amount we're spending, or we can increase the revenue. So, let's start by reducing the amount we're spending. Let's talk about cuts. So you think? Yeah, I mean, cuts are really one of the the gut punch. I think the gut reaction to this whole thing is says okay we're not making as much money well let's cut so there there's some merits to that um but i think as you might find out as we talk about this there are some problems with cutting your way to a balanced budget under the the current situation so one of the things we've been hearing a lot about is the right sizers um these are people who who want to right size government yeah and who wouldn't want to right size government who doesn't want the i I don't know. I'm a wrong size government kind yeah. of guy myself. I could tell you look like one. Yeah. Just see it in my eyes. Um, a lot of these people really, truly believe in the Goldsmith plan, which is kind of a, a model laid out by a guy named Scott Goldsmith. Who is it a plan or is it a model? Because I feel like it's a model. It's like a statistical model where he says, mm-hmm. you know, if we do this, then this kind of works out. But I don't think it's a plan. Yeah. If you talk to him, it's not a plan. Yeah. So, so basically, in kind of round numbers, and this is all sort of changed because oil has really fallen off the cliff, really, really fell off the cliff, um, is that if we have a state government with total spending around $4.5 billion, we could kind of ride everything out. So we can so, kind of... So the idea is that if we cut our budget by a billion dollars, then we're going to be okay, because th- this is just the low cycle in, in a fluctuating market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so to hear, I actually heard him talk over the summer... And he said, to cut down to here, you have to give up a lot. And it's just, this is just as how far you can get down to and kind of ride the cycle. If you want anything above this, you need to start paying for it. Okay, but Dermot Cole wrote an article about how those numbers aren't maybe right anymore because the prices of oil has dropped out so much that maybe the number we're looking at is more like $3.8 billion. Yes, or, so um, that's, and that's the whole problem is that you know, I think this plan was built with expecting higher highs in the future, and I don't think anyone's expecting those at, at, as long as we're not wearing spiky pad, spiky shoulder pads and riding around hunting for oil. Okay. I think we're just not going to see oil prices that high anytime soon. Well, and but, but in all fairness to those people uh, who think we will see high oil prices soon— uh, everyone said we would wouldn't be in this situation right yeah exactly so no one knows the future yeah all right um so so how do we get to this number so that's so if you if you want to cut and i think i think there is definitely merit in, in reducing the size of government right now how do we get to those cuts and i think one of the really common ways we're seeing right now is just saying okay we're going to 
we'll cut 16%. Yeah. We'll cut 10%. Mm-hmm. We need to cut 3% every year over X number of years. I yes. Mean, that, that's the kind of thing I'm hearing, right? Yeah. And so you can go down to the bottom line of a department and just say, all right, 10%, we're not going to give you, we're going to give you 10% less money than you had last year. And that seems like a really easy way to cut the budget, right? Because so I'm, oh, yeah. I'm the governor and I say, we're going to do 10% across the board. And I'm going to trust that the people who I've appointed to these positions are going to make the right decisions about what to cut. So mm-hmm. it, is that how does that work what's the what's well you got that look in your eye so this this is like one of the issues that me as a reporter really doesn't like is it doesn't have doesn't have any kind of specificity you don't know what it's going to do when you pass it right and so you know they did about 30 million dollars these kind of cuts last year and it ended up kind of we still really don't know what it did like it it ended up because every little every department every trickle down manager made a decision about something yeah. and we don't know what we lost and, and in a lot of ways it, it and in the ways that we do know it affected us it was all kind of on um, service level stuff so these people who complain about government you know they're not they're not saying oh they plow our roads so much or oh they they really make sure there's not enough there's not criminals out there they make sure you know they don't they're never saying that they're always talking about you know, the bureaucracy, they're talking about the inefficiencies in government. And the problem with these unallocated cuts is that they're handed to the exact kind of people that you're complaining about in the first place. So kind of middle management. Yeah. So you're asking the directors, you're asking the managers to decide where to make these cuts. And when they look at their budget, they're not going to say, oh, we really should remove the all this bureaucracy at the top. They're going to say, let's, well, we'll just plow half as much. And so it's kind of a gutless move. It's passing the buck. You're asking yeah. someone else to make the hard decisions about what we value as a government. Mm-hmm. So it's abdicating responsibility. Yeah, and it really lacks leadership and vision. And the idea of unallocated cuts really gets to one of my kind of pet peeves about this. And my, my main thought about how we want to cut the budget is, do we want to cut everything by 10% and ev- do everything that we do 10% worse? Or do we want to start looking at removing programs wholesale, and so you are doing some programs well and just not doing some other things at all? Right. And I I'm, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but I've got a friend who has worked in DEC, and he's talked about um, food safety a lot. And he says that because of the way they do these unallocated cuts, pretty soon you have this department that can't really go out and, like, check a business and, like, uh, do a safety mm-hmm. inspection, right? Like, so... Uh, maybe a restaurant opens and they get their health inspection, but they don't see the guy come around for a while because he, like, first of all, travel budgets are all eaten up. Mm. Like, you can't get out to wherever you need to be. And so we're not really inspecting, we're not really doing food safety work, you know, at, at the level that we need to be doing. So we need to decide, are we just going to tell people, like, hey, that's not something we value as a state. We're not going to do this kind of food safety health health inspection work or we do value it and we're going to fund it and we're going to make sure it's done right. Mm-hmm. But, but having this, like um, there's this disconnect where you, you're, you're not, you're saying that you're doing a service, but you're not really doing it. Yeah. And those are the top, these are really tough decisions. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be the guy that says uh, we we're not going to do health safety inspections anymore, or we're not going to have like the Bureau of vital statistics office in Fairbanks anymore. That was like a real cut that they did. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think it, it really, I think, reveals a really big um, philosophical split in the legislature, which is, you know, do you want less government or or do you want an effective government? 
you know, and so do we, are you trying to... Right. Do you want less government across the board mm -hmm. or do you want us to really focus on the thing, on the services that we value? Yeah. Do you believe government can be effective and efficient? Yeah. Okay. So anyways, we've, uh, I think we've skirted the issue of what we're going to cut. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> effectively, right? So... Um, are there any things that are really obvious to cut? I mean, you you pay a lot of attention to the budget. Are there things that, that all the reporters in, in the newsroom are just like, oh, man, why haven't they cut this? I mean, yeah. I just can't believe it. Well, well so one of the things that – so um, I got the opportunity to host a um, budget dis roundtable discussion with a couple – people with experience in the legislature during difficult economic times. Um, it's on online at 360 North. Uh, I think calling calling finding true North is one of the, is what the program is called. Um, but one of the things that they talked about during that is that we do need to make cuts and we definitely need to make cuts that earn us credibility with the public. Mm -hmm. So it's cuts that do get at um, either the bureau bureaucratic overhead or the, the services that aren't really needed um, you know, I think one, I listened to a lot of budget testimony the other night about, um, a permanent fund dividend change that, uh, Walker is proposing. And the one thing, the one kind of main thread that we were able to take out of that other than don't touch my dividend is, Hey, get rid of that Anchorage LIO, you know, and it's not really, you know, those are only $10 million maybe. Yeah. Over over years. And so that's just a credibility issue of this one thing mm -hmm. that's become a symbol of waste. Yeah. So there's stuff like that. So there's that. You know, there's stuff like, you know, the Ambler Road. Um, I think they're spending five, ten million dollars on that. Nobody really supports it. There's not even really clarity of whether or not the company that they're building it for is ever going to use it because so, so there are, we already know what these symbols of government waste yeah. are is what you're saying yeah, yeah. and so I, so those are the those are some of the places to start at the very least um, but they're but, not they're they, but like you say they're insignificant ultimately I mean, yeah. if you're talking about ten million dollars over multiple years like that's nothing mm -hmm. when you're talking about three point eight billion dollars a year so so some of the one of the really big things, and it's always kind of held harmless, are you know when we talk about the budget, um, you know they always throw out the fact that if you laid everybody off in government tomorrow, you wouldn't close the gap on the budget crisis right now. Right, and, and so so that just to back up that that statistic is that if we fired every state employee, we still wouldn't be able to make it meet. Yeah. So part of that is what they call formula programs, which, you know, it, it's education funding, it's the base student allocation, it's Medicaid um, benefits. And it's kind of, they're talked about in a way where they're hands off. You know, we say, oh, they're, they're formula, so we can't touch them. Those are the big untouchable drivers of our budget. And they are in, in a lot, in a, because it requires actual legislation to change. Mm -hmm. um, but you can change them. And so... You know, one of the big questions that they really aren't talking about, because I think it's extremely politically unpopular, is, you know, does Medicaid cover, do we want Medicaid to cover everything that it's currently covering? Because it's not, it's covering beyond um, what the federal requirement is. And so that becomes a values question. It becomes a political question. Do you want to take this sort of stuff away that people currently have? Right. So it's hard to take away something that people are enjoying because they 
all of a sudden they notice it's missing. And that's, those are these are direct services. You know, these are these are you know austerity measures. You know that are taking away things that people are currently receiving. So you're saying that we could go back in and tinker with these formulas and change the mm-hmm. way they work, but it would be really unpopular. But it might save us a ton of money. Yes. So, but the, and these are all kind of questions that they need to have, is or discussions that they need to have. Um, do they want to reduce these services? Do they want to do this? And but but that's a lot. That's a whole lot better than ten percent cut. Right. So. Okay. All right. So, so how do we pay for it? Okay. So, but there's one, and there's one other thing that oh, I, yeah. that I do think we should touch on before we kind of get out of mm-hmm. talking about cuts here. And that's this graph that legislative finance put out, and it's um, it it takes our um, our state budget and it uh, puts it on a graph uh, adjusted for inflation. If you believe in it. If you believe in inflation, oh man. Um, so our it takes our state budget adjusted for inflation and per capita, and it shows us kind of what what we're spending in real dollars. And you know today's numbers are very similar to the lowest point in the '90s, and also to the like 1975 when we're still kind of on the upswing of first mm-hmm. seeing some of our oil money come in. And, and so the conclusion of that is that is that we're actually at a pretty low cycle in terms of, of funding mm-hmm. our government. And I think, yeah, and that, it, it helps. That, I think, is one of the most useful charts to kind of break through the this this kind of idea that government is huge. You know, if you, if you kind of look at that, you realize, okay, well, maybe we are kind of, doing as little as we we can you know at this point government is small maybe government is right size if it's the similar size as, as it's kind of always been although if you take that same graph and you peel it back a few extra years you see, <laughs> you see a drastic drop off uh, in, this, in terms of real dollars and when what 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 coincided with that that's I mean that's when we first got our uh, big oil lease money mm-hmm. and it came into the state and we're spending a lot of money over the you know, from like 1969 to 1975 or so, we were really kind of ramping up. And so maybe we're on the other end of, of oil, and we're going to see that drop down into, mm-hmm. into you know, what does Alaska look like without oil? Maybe that's, is that where we're going already? Yeah. I don't think we're there yet. So if we can't oh. cut the budget down to nothing, what do we need to do? Let's talk about revenue. Oh. Let's, let's make some money. That's what we need to do. You know, it's a really interesting thing um, from as a Rasmussen Foundation did a study on this. If you call it revenue enhancement, people really like it. If you call it taxes, people really don't like it. But it's the same thing. Shh. Okay, I won't tell anyone. It also is all about narrative. You know, if, yeah. you, if you say revenue enhancement, revenue revenue changers instead of taxes, much easier to sell. All right. So, what are some of our options for revenue? We've uh, lottery we've got a lottery right we could we could have a yeah, big I, bingo jar there and, was that big that big uh lottery just a few weeks ago right yeah so we could all get in on that we're talking about this first because it's the dumbest idea right <laughs> do we both agree <laughs> on that yeah i mean the really i think the kind of the one of the things that we should really be judging all these on is the regressivity right Okay, so and we should define that too. Like when we're talking about re- regressivity, we're talking about like who does this hurt? Who's mm-hmm. where's this money coming from? Who's being made to shoulder this burden? And when you're saying regressive, we're meaning that 
the poor people who are poor? Well, not necessarily. It could be um, maybe it's people who are older or, or mm-hmm. children. Um, like that's kind of to me. Children it, are pretty is, poor. But that's they something you need to right. exactly. Yeah. Who is being a productive uh, income generator? So mm-hmm. if you're retired, you're not making a lot of income, but you're still buying into whatever system this is, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're a kid, you're not making much more than your allowance, but you're. But if you're made to shoulder the burden of the state's <laughs> budget <laughs> deficit, that's difficult. So regressivity is like, how much are we putting this on the shoulders of people that are capable of carrying this burden? And how much are we trying to throw it onto the shoulders of kind of people that aren't so capable of carrying the burden? Mm-hmm. So lottery. So lottery. It's a, it's, it's no good, right? I mean, it's the one thing on this. Do we have some studies? We have a little bullet point list here in front of us right now that has some of the ideas on it. And it's the one that I do not think has any bill in the legislature to currently propose right oh, that's, now. Oh, good. I'm glad. I do not think so. Although... One of the, one of my favorite things about Alaska yeah. is that we have no... We don't have billboards. Mm-hmm. And it's because we've said we love our scenic beauty up here. We don't want to obstruct it. And I feel like lotteries are sort of the, the same kind of like tackiness. Mm-hmm. Like, why do you want to have a lottery? It's not... It doesn't, it doesn't bring in that much money. Yeah. It doesn't bring in that much money to the state. And it creates a really weird miasma of, uh, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, wealth scrabbling. Like people trying to scramble up the ladder and throwing their money away on wishes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, in a lot, of, a lot of people's minds, you might think of a lottery as something kind of fun you do. A couple bucks here, a couple bucks there. We've got pull tabs. We don't need a lottery. Yeah. But, but you know, you look, at, you, looked, you look at what some of the people were doing when... Um, this big, uh, this big jackpot was going on, and people were spending hundreds or even thousands of dollars on this, and you know they didn't have any chance of winning. You know, there's a hope. There's a hope. That's kind of fun, I guess. But you know, we have video games. We have bull tabs. We we will have crane games eventually. You know? I can't believe that crane games are illegal in Alaska. <laughs> That's amazing. I grew up in Alaska playing crane games. I am a scofflaw. Yes. <laughs> okay uh okay sorry yeah we were very diverging here okay so the uh so what's the next on this marijuana tax syntax taxes yeah we actually generate a lot of revenue from alcohol and uh tobacco taxes right now and we um, will presumably from marijuana taxes if there if anyone is ever allowed to open a business and they have to still pay them in cash which is always fun yeah um so you know the big the big thinking behind these though is that you know the idea, at least behind syntaxes, is that they're supposed to be covering the social programs that help pay for the ills that are caused by enjoyment of your alcohol and cigarettes and. Yeah, we have a lot of we have a lot of social costs that go along with alcohol and tobacco use in Alaska. We've got fetal alcohol syndrome is a huge problem here. We've got a lot of like abuse that stems from alcohol, things like that, and so the tax really doesn't bring in revenue so much as it offsets the social cost of having these things as part of our society yeah and actually and right now there is um there is a bigger push to start to treat some of these in a more serious way you look at alcohol and especially and as the the legislature is looking at um, corrections reform they're looking at more effective ways of ensuring that people don't commit the same crimes again and and so that is making sure people can work it's making making sure people 
um, if they don't want to drink anymore, that they have the resources available to them. So this is something that is actually being thought about right now, which is kind of in, in some ways kind of surprising given the budget situation that all of a sudden that people are realizing maybe if we spend, you know, $80 a day on alcohol treatment, we're not spending $150 a day locking these people up. Um, okay, so let's talk about uh, resources. So mm-hmm. that's another thing we have in the state is we have a lot of natural resources and we tax the development of those. Um, you know, we were just talking about sin taxes. I, I was surprised to find out that Alaska makes more money off of like cigarette and alcohol taxes than they do off of fishing and mining, which is kind of our, you know, those are the hats we put on when we go to work is fishing and mining. Yeah, I mean, it's kind but, of amazing. I think a lot of the mining taxes in particular all sort of date back to pre-statehood. Yeah. So um, they really haven't been um, revisited in any kind of serious way, and I think there's a lot of industry pressure to not touch them. Um, so we'll see what happens with them. I know they're looking at revisiting uh, some of the licensing fees with them in particular. And part of that is because I think the margins in, in mining and fishing are a lot smaller than oil is, but it, it still kind of makes you at least wonder, you know, at the very least, there isn't hasn't been the scrutiny on it. Mm-hmm. I think it it does merit a conversation at the very least. So yeah, and again, it's it's just not a big, um, it's not a big ticket item. Mm-hmm. All right, and, and it, it's one of those things that I think, um, mining, like you know, mining and fishing, a lot like oil production, creates a lot of jobs, and the quality, and especially mining in Fairbanks creates a lot of really good paying jobs. So, um, and here in Juneau. Yeah. So, so exactly how these will be addressed. Um, it's hard to say how they should be addressed, but at the very least, I think there should be a conversation about it. I think they've sort of been held harmless for the last 50, 60 years. And it's maybe a time to start looking at it. To see if they're really, really carrying their weight. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that, that actually goes back to this constitutional mandate of of developing the resources, um, you know, for the maximum benefit of the people. Mm -hmm. And so are we doing that? Are we living up to that? Mm -hmm. Or are we kind of just giving away our, our, uh, natural resources? Yeah. Is the maximum benefit a few hundred jobs? Yeah. For a lot of out of state employees, but that's, that's a different conversation for a different day. Okay. So, um, so next on the list, we've got an income tax. Oh, wait, let's get the oil tax credits. Oh, yeah, we should talk about tax so, credits, right? So, so, so we did. We we just talked a lot about some of the smaller industries, but the big elephant in the room, obviously, is oil. Right. So one of the big changes that they're looking at is reworking how oil credits, oil tax credits work. We're not even talking about a tax on the resource. We're talking about the money we pay them mm-hmm. for, like bonus incentive. Yeah, these are like hundreds of millions of dollars that we're paying out every year. Right. And, and the reason we pay it out is to incentivize production of oil. So, like, it's not a big enough incentive that you get to make a couple billion dollars a year. Like, mm-hmm. we're going to actually pay you some more money on mm-hmm. top of that. Yeah. So, and the benefit of these is kind of hard to quantify. And a lot of it goes to the problems with the auditing we've done on the North Slope. It just kind of, they've been delayed and delayed. So, we don't have a good sense of whether or not these were working. Um, but at the very least, we, can, we look at that number of production, and it's continually going down. And so, um, you know, there's, there is a movement to really relook at these. Uh, I think the governor's proposal would change these into a loan program, so you, you would get a benefit, but you would eventually have to pay it back. So a small business could get off the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, the other big part of this, too, of course, is going to be, hasn't been talked about as much, but is um, the minimum floor on the tax. So this is 
Under the new regime of oil taxes that was pa- were passed into Parnell, Senate Bill 21, there was a floor. It was about 4% gross tax. So basically, the tax rate was 35%, but there's all these sort of um, exemptions you could do along the way. So effectively, like uh, when they passed the tax, it was about 20-something 20, 20 percent. So when they say the tax is 35%, they really mean 4%. Now, yes. Now it's 4%. But so even the the really kind of crazy thing about this, and you kind of, you put your tinfoil hat on maybe on this level, but at 4%, so the floor is 4%, but you can carry forward your loss on it. So effectively it's 0%. So you're paying no money on it, even though it says in the law you should pay 4%. So governor's proposal raises that to 5% and makes it so there's no way you can go below it. It makes a hard floor. Closes the loophole. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's good. So, that, yeah, that it doesn't raise them. that much money, but it's, it's all right. It saves us some money. saves us some money, yeah. yeah. Okay, and then um, and then another thing we're talking about is the income tax. Uh, I actually wrote a uh, an opinion piece for the ADN about this, and it was just sort of a... Um, Did you say no income tax? I know. Over and over I and over again? I said the opposite. I said, hell yes, we need an income tax. Um, I, I actually just finished reading this book about earnest screening, and... I just drew out all these parallels that were like, we've had this tax battle, this revenue battle before, and we've solved this problem before. And then we immediately forgot about it when oil came into the picture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we gave, we gave one generation a tax holiday um, at the expense of all of us and all of our children. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so this, you know, the generation that has tier one benefits now is, uh, has also enjoyed a their most productive years of their lives living uh, income tax free, mm-hmm. um, and now they get to make decisions about how the rest of us will live. Sorry, small <laughs> side uh, gripe, um, but yeah. The so let's talk about the this in, this idea of an income tax. I think that um, income tax is is really necessary. It's one of the the least regressive forms forms of tax. It's based on like oh you've got some money good you can pay some money. What do, what do you think about income tax? It's hard to say. You know, one of the one of the biggest things um, is that there hasn't really been particularly good vetting of any of these measures as far as their actual impact on Alaskans and as far as their actual impact on the economy. So it's hard to say. But you know, you I, sound like one of those guys that just wants to do study after study after study. I just wanted. To, I what wanted, consulting I wanted to do firm smart. do you work yeah, for? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so yeah i don't really know how i think about that. i don't know if i feel about this but um i think out of, out of all the options that we can do it, it is one of the least regressive things and i think that's kind of my personal sort of guiding principle on this is how do you kind of minimize the impact to the lowest wage lowest earners and and sort of make it fair i guess yeah, um, I, I also think it's an obligation like if you want services from your government you should pay for them you shouldn't just like rely on magic money coming in from but i, I, I don't go to school here why should i pay for school you drive on the roads <laughs> you fly through the airports um so yeah <laughs> your roads are plowed sometimes I mean, I if think, you're lucky I, I think one of the big the the biggest kind of opponents to this are people who feel like for whatever reason that they yeah they don't rely on government or they don't you know benefit or they or they never want you know they they don't go to school currently so they you know but without realizing that someone paid for them to go to school right they went to elementary school at some point some of them some of the people in the legislature (laughs) made it through elementary school. some of them yeah so and and i think there there's a you know a concept here of you know why it's a redistribution of wealth which 
Yeah, it's it kind is. of what income tax that is but, what an income tax does, but it's also kind of how, maybe how society works. And I like I like redistribution of wealth. It's it it turns our society into it turns us away from aristocracy and towards meritocracy. Like mm-hmm. it gives us a chance for those uh, people who work hard to advance, and that's like this whole idea that we're sold is that America is about people being able to advance in society and if and if you're not spreading out the wealth and giving people a fair shot at it all you're doing is creating a legacy society where where an, the you know where the senator's kid gets to be the senator mm-hmm. i mean that's one of the longest you know it's one of the best indicators i think of um of wealth and i'll have to look at this study but um i'll put it in the show notes if i can find it um but i think i believe one of the best indicators of someone's sort of lifelong earning potential is their parents earning potential and i think that i think illustrates really well you know um why helping out the why people we need on, to yeah. redistribute that wealth exactly yeah. yeah so if you can help people out on the bottom end maybe they can do a little better and end up a little bit better than their parents did as opposed to kind of keeping the same stuff the status quo yeah i mean it shakes it up well and ultimately, in the long term, the less people the government has to support, the less government costs, right? Mm-hmm. So the more disparity we create and the more people that can't take care of themselves, the more people that the state has to take care of. The well, more people that become disenfranchised, mm-hmm. the more the more the system falls apart. Um, and one of the really interesting studies that came out this week, it was a, it was a Medicaid study that was presented in one of the finance committees, um, was this, so they they were looking for like the silver bullet as how to fix Medicaid, right? And they're asking, so what's what's the home run here? Is what they're asking, and they said, well, really, the best way to reduce the cost of Medicaid is to make people healthy, and yeah. not rely on it in the first place. <laughs> like make them able to go to work, make them able to make sure they don't get obese and have heart problems in the first place. Like th- those sort of smaller things at the beginning are the ways we avoid. The more costly, you know, emergency room visits later right. on, and those are the hardest things to justify when you're trying to spend money. We talk about like the the scope of of the size of this deficit and how it's hard to comprehend. But I think one of the other really things that's hard to comprehend is time. And so, you know, it's hard for I think anybody to look at an investment in a preschooler saying, okay, if we make sure they learn how to read, then they won't be committing crimes 25 years from now yeah. and they will be earning more. And those sort of things take an extreme level of foresight to be able to plan for. And I just don't like, I have, I have trouble comprehending that sort of thing. I think about that stuff like um, all the time. Cause I walk around downtown Juneau and I see kids that I went to high school and middle school with like out on the streets. Mm-hmm. And I think like, Oh, like how could they, have gone a little bit different direction. Like what? Yeah. What little nudge would it have taken? Exactly. So yeah. What? You know, so you, you look at it in terms of like space, right? Like if you make a little sort of course correction, you know, on your way to Mars, it takes a tiny little bit of gas, you know, when you're leaving the atmosphere. So do you do you spend a little bit now to save something in the long term, or do you, or do you sort of stay in a situation where you're spending a lot to solve the problems that you could have? Okay, I hate to break up the party. Yeah, sorry, but we, long tangent there. We've got a list of stuff here to go through. Okay, so boom, sales tax. Boom, all right. All right, so sales tax is something that I think is uh, silly for, for Alaska to do on a statewide level because it's, it's a, first of all, it's very regressive. It 
um, people who are, aren't earning income are still paying this tax. You've got, it really hits uh, older people, it hits young, you know, it hits children that are buying things. Um, it does bring in some money from people who are visiting us. We have a tourism mm -hmm. economy, so that's that's an upside to it. Um, but largely, it's it's kind of a tax on the on the on the middle class and the poor. On my end, when I I, I think about the income on, impact on businesses, I think of people who, you know, that were were buying something locally, and instead now they're turning to online or something like that, or, or right. especially so it, so it might drive people out of your market. Possibly. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what I wonder Especially about. if it stacks up. So we already have a 5% sales tax in Juno. People are used to paying that. It doesn't seem to impact business mm -hmm. too much. But if that jumped to a 15% sales tax, yeah. like that would kill us. You're mm -hmm. right. You know, like everyone would just save their pennies. I mean, I think it will, any sort of sales tax really depend on how we implement it. Can you, can it, is it 10% uh, statewide, but Juno gets to take 5%, you know, 5% of that, or half of it gets to go to Juno for its 5% sales tax. Um, does it end up being something seasonal? You know, does it only happen during tourist season or something like that? Um, I feel like the more... does it Is it a tax on food? The more groceries? fluid you make it, the more little rules you build into the sales tax, the more administration that it yeah. needs. And also the more complicated it is for people to uh, to implement on a business mm -hmm. side. Like I'm a small business owner. It is a pain in the ass to do any kind of paperwork or mm -hmm. reporting or whatever. And for a sales tax, when you're like itemizing out all these little, Oh, like that was a sandwich. That was a piece of bread. Like that was, and you have to build in all these codes to your system or find a new system that has mm -hmm. the codes built into them. Like that's, that's not a great thing for a business owner. And yeah. And that's one of the things too, is that, um, I think a lot of the analysis that we have seen, sort of the back of the envelope stuff that we have seen of all these tax bills, is that sales tax does have one of the highest costs to administer because you need a huge amount of stuff to change. Whereas income tax, you're already doing payroll, you're already doing federal withholdings. Um, so I think the, the, um, the, the overhead on it's a lot lower. Yeah, and sales tax is a lot easier to cheat than income tax is. Like in income tax, you've got kind of like two sides. You've got the, you know, you've got this W-2 that's being reported, mm -hmm. and you've got your own income that you're reporting. And so you've kind of got a verification system built in. With the sales tax, it's all this like nickel-dime stuff that's mm -hmm. real easy to lose change in the couch cushions. Exactly. So. All right, earnings reserve. I don't, uh, I'm going to let you talk about this on permit fund. Uh earnings reserve so this is kind of one half of sort of the biggest um income piece that is on the table right now and probably the least popular um so the earnings reserve is this account that is filled by the uh earnings from the permanent fund so these are stock dividends these are income from half of that mall we own in dc you know mm -hmm. these are all the different kinds of things that the the 48 some billion dollars at the permanent fund all that money is out earning more money and so fills this pot every year and so out of this pot comes um uh inflation proofing of the of the uh permanent fund itself uh comes your dividends and then there's about you know a, a billion dollars or so left over each year and so and that money can be t tapped without uh, with the, uh, 21 votes in the House, you know, majority vote. And um, there's some political kind of re repercussions if, you know, if you draw that down and for some reason the uh, earnings are down a whole lot one year, there might not be money in there, and then, boom, there's no dividends whatsoever. Right. Um, but we're already looking at kind of this 
a few years out if we don't do something maybe there won't be dividends anyway yeah so i mean that's the whole calculation because so right now they're going to be taking from the state's savings account the constitutional budget reserve if you want to get really wonky about it um that's going to be done in a few years the only real other account after that is going to be the earnings reserve and then once that's gone no more dividends yeah so fun yeah so, so is it it's not popular what do you think about it i mean like is it does it make sense to tap into i mean that isn't that isn't that what the permanent fund was originally set up for yeah so I mean I think I don't know. We've yeah, so, I mean the other half of this is you know reassessing how we do dividends, mm -hmm. and so this is you know the governor's described it as replumbing the dividend. Right. So basically his plan. So there's, and it's not just his plan either. Yeah. Right. Lisa McGuire has a plan also that's similar to his plan that yes. kind of re replums. Yeah. So th there's a lot of you know we can get real wonky here, but we'll keep it kind of simple. Um, there's an idea that you know you basically sequester or you, you you save some of the earnings for dividends and some of the earnings for state government, and kind of how you do that sort of depends on who you ask. Um, the governor's plan would basically uh, uh, take you know make about two billion dollars a year um, for state government, and then the the problem the the the, the and it would cap. Or it would immediately reduce the dividend to a thousand dollars. It was about two thousand dollars last okay, year. Okay, can I try and explain yeah. this? Okay, so the governor's plan, as I understand it, is is just a little bit of sleight of hand. Right now, we have uh, our state budget is largely drawing from our resource revenue, mm -hmm. uh, while our dividends is largely drawing from our investment revenue. Alaska has a huge pot of money in the in the form of the permanent fund, and so we actually have more investment revenue coming into the state now than we have uh, resource revenue. And so what they want to do is basically switch those two models so that now the uh, resource revenue goes to pay the dividends, and so as our resource revenue declines, our dividends decline, mm -hmm. and the uh, investment revenue goes to funding the state government which and is much so, more stable uh, so yes so we have the added bonus of stability and uh we have a long-term funding mechanism for state government we we know how much we're going to have every year so that's kind of the governor's plan that is a succinct explanation of his plan actually it's maybe one of the the best explanations i've heard especially with the hand motions you used of switching hands which don't work on yeah. <laughs> on radio at all but yeah i that's how that's how i i I see it. It's just it's like a necessary sleight of hand. We're switching, mm -hmm. we're switching these two models, um, so that our government uh, can continue to be sustainable. The one thing that, that as a side effect that I really like about it is that it um, attunes people, it attunes citizens of Alaska to the um, value of our resource wealth. Mm -hmm. Because now your dividend doesn't reflect what the permanent fund. Uh, has in it, you know, like all the money we're making from all of our investments. Now your permanent fund, your your uh, now your dividend check is not a permanent fund dividend; it's a resource dividend. So you're mm -hmm. getting um, you're getting a payout that's directly corresponding to how much resource revenue the state's made. Mm -hmm. So if we're getting screwed over by the oil companies, everyone's going to know real fast because their dividend's going to tank out. Yep. Um, so I don't know. There's kind of an upside to that. The the potential downside I see to that that uh, connection is that it will incentivize Alaska to do a lot more development with a lot less mm -hmm. uh, caution. Well, and the other other part of it, especially in this situation, is that our resource wealth isn't 
there isn't a whole lot of it right now. So, you know, the governor's plan guarantees a thousand dollar dividend right away. And but that's actually under how this plan would do it. That's actually pretty inflated from right. how it normally works. So so as oil uh, production declines and if prices stay low, the dividends go bloop, bloop, like bloop, 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 and then you've got six hundred, five hundred dollars yeah. kind of thing. So it'd be a near impossible situation to really see under that plan and a two thousand dollar dividend again. Um, but you would see stuff around, you know, a thousand about five hundred dollars. Is that true? Like if you took our the our highest day of production and our best prices, like we still wouldn't have a two thousand dollar dividend. It would, it would get hot in the high thousands. It'd be about eighteen hundred dollars. Uh, yeah. This is the back of the envelope math I did a while a little yeah. while ago. So, yeah, under the highest year, it'd be about um, about eighteen hundred dollars. Yeah. Okay. See, yeah, that's really interesting to me. Like the and and where all that extra money is going is actually into the permanent fund, right? So our permanent fund is getting bigger. Mm-hmm. So our ability to fund the government. The nice thing about the governor system is it actually provides kind of a, a catch basin, so that um, a giant inflated permanent fund doesn't just get like pecked away by the legislature. Yeah. It 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 still kind of trickles out the same amount of money um, for the budget every year, so it doesn't inflate our budget rapidly. Yeah. And so, you know, he calls it the govern or the dividend protection plan or something yeah. like that. Um, it does it does protect it. Um, it just doesn't it's never gonna be as big as two thousand dollars. Right. So so it's a trade off, you know, it's a question of, you know, the, the average of it average of the dividend has been, you know, about a thousand dollars over the life of it. And so it would kind of put us around there. Yeah. And so it's kind of a question of, you know, are you willing to give up that thousand bucks? Well, it gets back to regressivity. When you mm-hmm. talk about regressivity in the form of the permanent fund, you're talking about taking a, you know, cutting it from 2000 to 1000 means you're taking a thousand dollars out of the pocket of every man, woman, and child in mm-hmm. Alaska. Right. So yeah. like that's our, our resource wealth. And that's what, that's actually why I like the idea of taking a, um, of using the permanent fund, keeping permanent fund levels similar to what they are now, mm-hmm. and then doing a, um, basically like treating it like a tax credit. So having an aggressive income tax, and then pay, and then you get to, you either get money back, or you get that much deducted from what you owe mm. the government. Yeah. So if the dividend check you get is $2,000, and you owe $1,000 to the government, then you get a $1,000 check. Mm-hmm. Um, so that eliminates some of the regressivity, and it also takes kind of the sting out of this uh, income tax. So let me ask you now, do you think that's a conversation people are having? I think it's a conversation people should be having. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the whole thing is that it, it's this sort of solution, this revenue side solution um, is a big kind of complex puzzle. And, you know, one, you know, th- and so right now, you know, the income tax is one bill. The permanent fund replumbing is another bill. The mining tax is another bill, and it kind of, that's sort of how it has to be. But um, so it doesn't. So we could end up in a situation where we pass the permanent fund change, but oh shoot, the income tax came up short. Right. So you've got all these pieces to the puzzle that might not all fall together, and then you've got a big broken jalopy of a system. Yeah. I and that's and and so people I've talked to, you know, when they kind of assess what's going to happen up there, there's not a whole lot of hope for an income tax this year. There is, there is, for some, for whatever reason, they, they do think they can get the dividend change That's through. That's crazy to me. I don't know what Alaskan thinks that, that, that cutting your dividend but not in, implementing an income tax. I don't know how that's a good idea for, for I think I think it's I think, it's a, I think it's an appealing idea to people, for people whose 
dividend isn't a very big part of their income. Yeah, absolutely. And those are the people making the decisions about this, right? So it's so yeah. you have like the most privileged wealthy people in the state making decisions that will harm them the least, which is disgusting. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's your word for it. Yes. Yes. I'm oh, sorry. Was that the wrong word? No. No. Yeah. No. Uh, and that's and then that's that's a really interesting. Um, problem that we're facing here i think you look at you know you look also at geographic differences here you look at um you know you look at who's talking about a sales tax up there and it's mostly people from communities that don't have sales taxes like anchorage and fairbanks you know the two biggest communities in the state and so um you know but as soon as you kind of break it out and then you start counting votes then you know you you hear the leadership talking about stuff like sales tax, but you start counting votes is a, about communities that do have sales tax, rural communities that have a whole other sort of wealth of issues, and um, for example, I think there there has been a lot of talk about a preference up there of a sales tax over an income tax, but when you start kind of counting stuff, I really don't think that actually plays out. I yeah. think I, I think there's really not support for a sales tax, income tax maybe. Dividend, maybe. Um, it, ultimately, everyone's going to be holding their nose on it. Okay, so we've kind of gone through the the cuts, and we've talked about uh, revenue, and uh, gone through our grocery list here of of uh, some of the potential potential possibilities. Yeah, was it? Hopefully, it was oh, better, more interesting than reading sorry, the grocery yeah. list. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if it was, <laughs> but we did it. Okay, so our show today is uh, is sponsored by Our Alaska which is the uh, plucky group of young Alaskans uh, who... Uh, you might have seen their Kickstarter. Yeah, they have a Kickstarter video out. Um, we'll provide a link to that in the show notes. Um, and they are trying to do something about the state budget, and that's kind of their message is let's do something. Let's have a discussion. Let's have a discussion about it. And so they are trying to... Um, well, I'll let uh, Aaron Harrington uh, explain a little bit more. Can you speak into your microphone? Good morning, Mr. Reyes. Good morning, Aaron Harrington. Yeah, that's that's working. Um, okay, so. Yeah, what are our objectives this, this morning? <laughs> How very professional of you. Um, what are our objectives? I would like to, um, um, like, hey, Aaron, Aaron Harrington, uh, what's up? Like, tell me about this project you're working on, and or tell me a little bit about you first, probably. It's okay. Like, uh, and maybe I'll even introduce you. Maybe I'll say, uh, so for our listeners who may not know you, you uh, grew up in Kodiak and Juneau, and you spend a lot of time in Anchorage, too. Um, and you are affiliated with the group Our Alaska. So Our Alaska is a pretty new organization. Um, what are its origins and um, how to get up and running? I barely think of Our Alaska as an organization. I think of it more as a collaborative of smart, fun energetic people who are getting together and trying to figure out ways of telling the stories of Alaska um, in that are different than how it's being done. So how does someone become a part of your collective? Yeah. You're, you're not an organization organization. Basically just reach out. So people want to get involved, um, come to our gatherings, be part of our events, be part of a number of the really fun projects that we have coming up. Basically, they need to just reach out and touch anyone who they know is associated with our Alaska, including myself, including my other co-founders, Catherine Jernstrom or Penny Gage, but frankly, anyone. And then we'll get people looped in. I mean, we are we are open arms and welcoming to anyone who is a doer, who is bright, and who's interested in working on the values of the future. 
it is a sort of a strange growing phase right now. So we've just done this Kickstarter campaign. It actually doesn't wrap up until the 17th, but we met our goal in the first 72 hours. And then we've had a couple of really significant additional backing that's come to us actually outside of the Kickstarter campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a it's an evolution right now, but the genesis of it was um, a couple of us being at a conference where the keynote speaker put the challenge up, like if you have a significant, one of these sticky issues, one of these issues that's too complex to just have a linear path to its resolution, if you have an issue like that that you wanna work on, who are the 30 humans that you wanna work with on it? Not the 30 seats that have to be at the table, not the 30 interest groups that have to be represented, but the 30 actual people who are going to do something, who are going to be able to collaborate and imagine and implement and experiment and try to basically live test the solutions that get you toward the future. And so, you know, our Alaska was born at a table at the Crush Bar and Wine Place in Anchorage in late May or early June with me and Catherine and Penny saying like, who are 27 other bright people that we would want to talk to if we were talking about the concerns we have about the future? And then from there, it just is, it's becoming, I don't want to say it has become because it's totally in its it's nascent stage. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, I mean, the Kickstarter thing has is awesome and has been very visible, but the Kickstarter and the objectives that are going to be tackled with the funding that came to that are not our Alaska. I mean, mm-hmm. it's part of it. Our Alaska is a table that people can come to with their ideas and find collaborators and find people who are willing to put their shoulder behind that wheel with them. Um, and so it's a place where whatever your interests are, you can come with them, you can pitch them. And, and it's not like our Alaska as a quote unquote group is going to say that's a good idea or a bad idea. It means that someone's going to follow up with you afterwards or during and say, I think that's a great idea too. How can I help? Yeah. Um, and in that way, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like a design approach. It's rapid iteration of ideas to try to So is to get... it conceivable that, that um, multiple conflicting ideas might come out of your organization? Totally. And, I'm, and I think that that's perfectly represented by the fact that we have people sitting at the table who have very different political ideologies and um you know and people who want to uh, express a certain set of viewpoints might have different viewpoints from others but that's not really that's not really a problem in my view I mean, this is alaska right so alaska is a place where people don't hew to some sort of real specific political dogma and we really run the state based on relationships yeah so if you and i have a different political viewpoint or if you and i have a different um you know viewpoint for what the future should look like we're going to relate to each other first as people if we're doing it right. And I think that's kind of what we're hoping to do is do it right. And we're also going to humanize each other's viewpoints, right? And Just by that, having those conversations. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it sound, that sounds really idealistic and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But, but quite frankly, I mean, you know that I worked in the Capitol building for a, a handful of years. And one of the things that gets me down the most about it is that, a lot of the people who are swinging the hammers 
come to that space really because they like the battle, not because they have their eye on the future or the vision. And, you know, I'm from Kodiak. Kodiak's a funny, quirky little town. But one of the things that people say about Kodiak is in Kodiak, you'd rather fight than win. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that really applies to what happens in state politics a lot. People are more interested in grinding someone else under their heel than in taking a step back and looking at their ego or looking at their motivations or, or frankly, looking at their anger or even for some of them, like they're wounding, frankly, and saying, wow, what's going on with me that makes me want to have this be a fight that that kills us all um, instead of, you know, taking steps toward the future. So to me, you know, and I'm just one collaborative member right so that's the thing about our Alaska is I can come here and sit and talk to you about my excitement about it but like I am not our Alaska I'm just part of it but to me it represents a different way of of trying to activate energy and conversation and I think frankly it comes with some let's not fight mentality that is a breath of fresh air to me great well thank you for being here and thank you for sponsoring our show Okay, that was Aaron Harrington from Our Alaska. And uh, if you want to find out more about them, you can check out our show notes. Thank you to Our Alaska for sponsoring this episode of uh, our podcast. You know, if you want to sponsor the show, if you, uh, you the listener, not you, Matt, um, <laughs> if there are people out there who want to sponsor a show, we, we love to do this and would like to keep doing it. Um, so, yeah, get in touch. And it makes it easier. I mean, we're putting in a few hours a week at the very least. Um, researching these episodes, uh, talking about these episodes, brainstorming these episodes. And uh, Pat is the guy who does all the editing on it. And I have no idea what goes into that, but I assume it's also time. It's just me slouching in front of my computer for a few hours. Um, so we but, love, but we love doing this though. Okay. So now we'll back, talk about, talk so about our back, ideas. Back to the nitty gritty here. Yeah. yeah. So, so both Pat and I have been involved in one way or another in the budget discussion pretty d deeply for the last year, year and a half, you know, either through reporting or, or through being a Pat. Um, <laughs> okay. Fair, um, so, fair. so yeah, so I think we have some ideas and I think I would like to just talk to you about, you know, where do you see this going? Um, where would you like to see this go as a young Alaskan? Where do I want to see it go yeah. or where do I see it going? That's, I mean, there's a big difference there. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe if, if a legislator decides to pick this up and listen to it, and, and we well, change their mind. Yeah, and, yeah. Like, well, how would I, you like? Yeah, how? What kind of message would you like to send to them? You know, I think I talked about this a little bit, and I, I know I talked about this was it just moments ago. But the but I really think this idea uh, that we need to implement an income tax that it needs to be actually a fairly aggressive income tax, and that we need to treat the permanent fund uh, dividend checks as a tax credit. And uh, I think that that can be implemented uh, very simply. I think that the um, you know, the, the income tax can be a percentage of our federal taxes like Walker has proposed and that you can just type that in when you fill out your PFD application. And uh, then you either get a check or you pay slightly less income tax. Um, I think that's a really straightforward um, method to raise uh, a lot of revenue. It's not enough revenue to close the gap, but it's a that's a really good start. Um, I do kind of like the idea of replumbing the, uh, the dividend. Um, I like the idea of um, I, mean, I, I, I don't like the idea of capping the dividend, but I do recognize that maybe we can't be paying people as much as we're paying them now. Um, 
it's a pretty sweet situation we are in as a state. Yeah, you know, it's, it's pretty it's enviable. Like kind of ridiculous. We don't pay any statewide broad-based taxes. Yeah, we get money for it. So, and and you mentioned earlier in the show, you mentioned the um, what was the name of the um, interview you did with? You, you did a, a television show on three sixty North. Finding True North. Finding True North, and it was you and Dermot Cole, and you interviewed Fran Ulmer and um, Gail Phillips. Gail Phillips. Mike Navarre and Halford. Rick Halford. Rick Halford. Yeah. And all four of them said that we need to institute an income tax. It was surprising to me that I agreed mm-hmm. with them and they agreed with me. But I like that. They also that. were all against the sales tax. And they were too. all against the sales tax. I think the sales tax should be off the table. I think it's uh, it's not good for our communities. Um, and I th- it's it's uh, really regressive. And uh, I also don't think any of them represented um, Anchorage or Fairbanks. Oh, okay. So, so that, that would make sense. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that we... I, I don't really have a problem with the marijuana businesses and they're not going to bring in a ton of money, but there will be some revenue there. So let's get that going. Um, I don't want to see a lottery. Um, I do think we can make some cuts to the budget. I think it's important that we make some cuts and in, in that if we, if we don't actually make some cuts to the budget, we can't do any of these other things. Regardless of what the right size of government is, um, and I'm, I'm throwing up some air quotes there, we need to follow the narrative we have we have woven for ourselves. And there's there's been so many people saying that the government needs to be cut that I feel like now it needs to be cut or else there or there'll be a, um, you know, people will not be satisfied. Mm-hmm. So they've kind of painted themselves into this corner of we do need to cut the bu- uh, we do need to cut the budget because you have said so so many times. So um, I, I hope that there will be some real specific cuts made, and I hope that it won't just be programs people don't like, but mm-hmm. I feel like there's going to be a lot of, you know, like <laughs> those grudges. I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure DEC is going to get punched in the yeah. guts. And, you know, like, I, you know, any, any department that ever tussles with the legislature, I feel sorry for them this year because, like, they're really just doing their job and, mm-hmm. and you know, telling the legislature what they don't want to hear is part of their job, and it means they're going to get just... Hmm just eviscerated this year well yeah and that was one of the interesting things i did a story um, before a session started about uh behavioral health grants and how some of those are being uh cut you know these, these are grants going to people who are treating stuff like alcohol abuse yeah it was really difficult to find any um non-profits that wanted to talk about it, any service providers because they saw that talking about it was just you know talking about it and talking about it in a way that says okay well we've thought about cuts and this is how well, how our services would be affected. You know, that just is putting the target on their back saying, oh, you've already thought about it. Well, then we're going to do it, you know. Yeah. And so I think that it is difficult f- for this to happen uh, or for, for people to talk about what cuts are going to mean for them. The This legislature in particular is really bloodthirsty, I think. And they're really looking for ways, in easy ways, particularly to cut. And that's what... I, my hope for this is that there's some leadership and some vision. You know, th- I hope that there are people who are who are thinking about what Alaska is going to look like in 20 or 30 years from now. I think. We, right. I mean, that, this is like that's this is the whole recurring problem for Alaska, right? I mean, is that every single crisis that we've ever faced, we've sort of taken for the most part the short-term solution, you know, or, or the opportunities. You know, when the the oil pipeline came online, they got rid of the income tax completely. You know, that was a really ultimately short-sighted, you know, solution to what they thought was an opportunity at the time. Right. If they'd kept paying the income tax and instead bolstered the permanent fund we'd have we would have a much bigger dividend right now mm-hmm. i know and we'd have a much bigger uh permanent fund to to draw from to 
cover us in our time of need, right? Yeah. I mean, like, instead of $50 billion in the bank, we might have 70. Mm-hmm. So that that's my hope for this. I know that, that's kind of in my reporting and my Twitter coverage, I think, in some ways reflects that is, you know, just don't don't shy away from these sort of hard decisions that we're going to have to make. You know, something's going to have to be cut. Um, so don't take the easy way out on it. You know, I think everyone was ultimately elected to represent the, their people and make the decisions on behalf of their constituents. And so, you know, making a decision that says, oh, we're just cutting 10% is just really weak. And I think, um, you know, there's some really actually, and, and so when you say like, oh, so how do we do this? Um, there are good examples already out there within Alaska of how you um, can reform something intelligently. And so you look at something like the, the criminal corrections reform that's going on right now. You know, it's a, it's a year and a half, two-year process that required bringing in experts on it. Um, but, you know, they're making significant changes that will hopefully save the state a lot of money, but while also doing kind of better. And so I think... Um, on, on the flip side of that, too, is that I think there's a lot of talk about doing more with less, which I think is the most kind of lame, gutless sort of thing you can say, which is really what we need to be doing is we need to be doing less with less, but we just need to be smart about what that what is in that less. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not asking a, a single employee to do the work of three men. Yeah, I mean, I, I worked, at, you know, I'm a journalist, yeah. you know, this is like, we've been going through this for years and it does, didn't work. It, that's an interesting working, parallel. You know? Like that's a, that's a actual, a very good parallel. You, yeah. Journalism has been downsizing for a decade. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, you have photographer, you have reporters who are supposed to be doing um, their own editing and their own photos. And on some level, I think the organizations that have realized that we're not going to get as good of a product or we're not going to get, um, as productive of a product, out, or we're not going to get as much out of these people. Like those are the ones that are doing well. Those are the places that say, okay, well maybe we're not going to get as many stories out of you, but we'll get better stories. And so that those are the people who are doing okay in this. Yeah. You know, I, I worked at a place that had quotas. You know, we had to do 10, 15 stories a week, and there was I just no way I could see myself ever continuing to work there. Right. Because of you that. just burn yourself out, and then they yeah. hire the new kid. And I had nothing, and I had nothing to show for it either. So, every time I hear somebody say, "Well, we just had to figure out a way to do more with less," is is just like the most empty platitude and the the least amount of leadership you can be showing on this. I think as long if we can figure out ways. You need to refocus. Yeah, if what we want to do, figure out what you want to do, because we have we can only do less. Yeah, and that actually gets into this conversation I had the other day on Twitter with uh, Kathy Tilton, a representative from Wasilla, uh, and it was it really kind of boiled down to what are our constitutional mandates? Like, what does the Constitution say that? What are our priorities? What have we already decided, already determined are our priorities and how do we get back to just focusing on our priorities? Um, it, was, so, it was an interesting discussion. What do you, I, yeah. yeah, you got something. Well, to say. so it, it's interesting. I, I heard I heard another uh, conversation where someone sort of angrily said, "Well, why don't we just do what's in the Constitution and we'll just start there?" But the problem is that the things that are in the Constitution are also maybe some of the most expensive things that we already have. It says, you know, it says education, it says health and well-being. So that's those. That's your education budget and your health and social services budget, which are the two biggest things, uh, and public safety. And I think there might be one more, um, but those are the main kind of core services. And I think that's actually 
you, t- you listen to the governor talk, and those are the sort of things that he is prioritizing. And that's why something like the opioid bill that is working its way through the legislature, despite this sort of budget-only focus, is still there because it is a public safety priority, unlike marmot license plates, unfortunately. Oh, marmot license plates. Uh, yeah, we should. That's that's going to be our. Can we once we get the budget thing fixed? Can we get that in the? We, we let's put it in the constitution. Okay. Yeah. What we can do a um actually maybe for the show someday we should try to do a referendum and we should go through the process of of uh you know fill out the paperwork and get, those budget get our signatures get and thirty thousand signatures we can do it yeah we got it we have got at least like twenty listeners now yeah so I think ask them to, we asked some of them to sign it, yeah we we need to come up with a real referendum okay here's an idea for okay can can we go on this tangent sure on my referendum yeah. tangent. Um, if people if people are still listening to us, they 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 might be interested in in my referendum. Yes. Okay. I think that we should we should um, we should develop a referendum that um, allows for uh, an online referendum process. Hmm. And I think the threshold has to be higher. Like you have to collect probably more signatures because it's mm-hmm. easy, easier to do it. Yeah. But I think that it, it overcome. Like why do we have to go out to every community and have people on the ground? It, it creates a huge financial burden mm-hmm. um, rather than a uh, uh, rather than like a burden of ideas or something. Like, yeah. You know, like you have to get like you the referendums would stand on the merits of on their own merits as opposed to your ability to organize or ability to fundraise. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, good ideas aren't going to be stopped by, uh, by shallow pocketbooks, you know, it's, mm-hmm. and, and I think ultimately we want good ideas. I guess it gets back to my aristocracy, <laughs> aristocracy versus meritocracy. We want, we want ideas of good merit to, to bubble to the top. And we mm-hmm. want, we want ideas that with big pocketbooks behind them to, to be weighed on their merit rather than yeah. on their ability to get money behind them there so, we go so yeah i think that a referent i think that we we champion a referendum uh to uh create an online a, a digital petition f- process for referendums in alaska to overcome our geographic uh disparity or whatever word goes there geographic uh dilemma geographic, geographic opportunity <laughs> Now we're back at the beginning of the episode. Our geographic crisis. Yes. Okay. Gosh, maybe that's a good spot to end. Um, yeah, I think so. We should do uh, some poetry. <laughs> Senate finance, Senate finance. All the ladies must wear suit pants. No? Is that... Uh, yeah, sure. I, I like that. Don't bad. they have like a funny dress code about... Is it really? I don't know if that's the one, but... The, the whole, I mean, the legislative floor has a like a weird dress code. I know that like... someone put out this like really chauvinistic dress code like a year or two ago, that was like uh, women have to wear, uh, you know, goofy suit. You either have to wear goofy suit pants and look stupid, or you have to wear a hot skirt. You know, like was this in Alaska? Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, wow. Oh, I don't remember. I I should look it up, but it's pretty funny. Neck deep in water, discussing which boat to take. The budget crisis. I like that. That uh, that's a nice tip of the hat to uh, the governor's state of the state address. It was afloat with the boat metaphors, <laughs> and it was anchored in boat metaphors. Man, you're really singing this. Yeah. <laughs> oh no! All right. Well, so that's our episode. We talked about the budget. Uh, we fixed all the problems. Um, we didn't do anything. Yeah. Um, I hope someone learned something. I hope that we learned something. If if you learn something. Let us know. We'd, we'd like to know that. Yeah. If you learned, like, literally anything. 
if you didn't don't let us know because that would be really embarrassing all right so let's wrap up what's the good news what's what's going on in the state that we're pumped about so uh earlier today i got there's a press release that came out the uh borough no fairbanks north star borough issued its first citation for air pollution oh wow so a guy got a hundred dollar fine tire fire for smoking out his neighbors after repeated uh warnings by the borough it's probably not good news for him i think it shows for me you know this is a really you know go back to all the way back to episode two oh the good old days on uh particulate matter and air pollution in in this area like it's a super serious problem and i'm glad that they're doing something about it um i don't know how the winter's looking right now i haven't really kept up super closely on it but they are finally kind of getting serious about um cleaning up the air yeah so there we go that's good so this is like the first step into into enforcement yeah yeah so we'll see how it plays out um I think at the very least, um, the government or the, the, the borough, the people who are responsible for cleaning up the air are taking the situation seriously, which um, is good. Great. Cool. I, I say, so mine's much more fluffy. Yeah. <laughs> um, the president released his budget, and on the cover of the book was a picture of Denali. So. And, there's, and inside the budget was a lot of money for Alaska. But I was more excited about the picture. Actually, well, it was really <laughs> the cool. Photograph. I right. saw it. Uh, I saw a picture of it, and I thought, "Oh, that's cool that the Alaska version of the budget book, or whatever the budget book that relates just to Alaska, has yeah. a picture on it." But no, that's the budget book that everybody gets. Yeah, for the United States, I, I love it. I, yeah, I hope that it was an Alaskan photographer that got a lot of uh, a lot of cheddar for that yeah. photo. <laughs> but uh, it's fantastic. Maybe it's a photo that. Uh, that the president took out of uh, mm-hmm. Air Force One when he flew by. Yeah. It was nice to see Alaska represented um, and uh, a little tip of the hat from the president. Um, yeah. And I think it, I think yeah, it shows it, that maybe he had a good visit. Exactly. It was a gesture, I think, that, um, you know, his trip uh, in a lot of ways, I think, was really inspiring to a lot of people, regardless of political spectrum. You know, I think you can disagree with him all, all sorts of ways. But there is kind of an awe-inspiring thing when the president of the free world you know, one of the most powerful people in the entire world comes here and, and enjoys it and dances around and gets uh salmon stuff all over his shoes and you know it's, it's fun milt if you want any more of this how could you you can go to <laughs> i'm uh, gonna edit it down it's gonna be shorter and, okay. you can go to hello alaska.pizza and you can find me on twitter at fdnm politics and i am at alaska robotics and you can also get us via email at heyguys at helloalaska.pizza. I think that's it. Goodbye, Alaska. Goodbye, Alaska. All right, ready, ready to do it with the recorder on? Yeah. <laughs>